Hello, you marvelous misfits. It's Jay Floyd, your host for this episode of the Grinning Idiot Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Um, Thanks for joining us, is what I said. Thanks for joining us. I'm not going to take it out either. I'm not. You can't make me. Um, I'm trying to coax my African gray parrot to come and sit on my shoulder uh, while I'm talking to you in this intro because... I want to know what will happen. I think something bad will happen, and I just want to see how bad it could be. Come here, Bella. She's just looking at me. She's suspicious. Okay, I'm going to let that go for now. Hi. So, I moved to Los Angeles a long time ago. It was in, that's by the way, just so you know, that barking is my parrot. My parrot barks like my dog. My dog barks like my dog. I don't know. It's just freaking weird. Anyway, um, I moved to Los Angeles uh, in 1990, maybe 1989. Ooh, I did a lot of drugs there at first, so I'm not exactly sure what year it was <laughs> when I first moved here. But the reason I moved here was because I've been making movies since I was like 12 or 13 or something, and, and this is where my dreams were housed. So I came here to make it big in Hollywood, which of course is where the whole idea of calling my production company Grinning Idiot came from, because what would you have to be to try to make it big in Hollywood? A grinning idiot. So there you have it. Now, I moved here and started doing what you do. I did all the standard things. I was an assistant to someone uh, who was a writer in Hollywood at one point. I, I was a waiter at Cape Mantellini, the snooty Beverly Hills diner that was so popular for many years. Um... I did what you do, including at one point a lot of drugs. Then I got sober, which is also something you do in Hollywood. Good Lord, I'm a stereotype in sneakers, basically. Um, but along the way, uh, I had a you know I I was trying to write screenplays and get them made. I uh, I wrote several. Um, a couple of them are really good. Uh, I think a couple of them are maybe kind of pedestrian. I'm not sure, but I kept trying and I kept getting great feedback. It was always, oh my God, this is so interesting. This is so well written. It's finally, it's such a relief to finally read a well written script, but nobody wanted to make them. That's why at one point I was going to write a manual on how to weather failing in Hollywood. Uh, and I was going to title it Raped by Hope. And then I knew it would piss everyone off. So I called it for a while Road Hard by Hope, which is when I realized as I tried to sit down and write it that. Pros and I don't really get along. I'm, I'm better in other formats. Um, and uh, the reason I was going to write that book was, this town will kill you with hope. It will string you along until the day you die, if you let it. Um, I eventually got so fed up with trying to get something made as the industry changed around me. Um, that I went and made my own movie, and, and it was somewhat successful. You know, it went to Sundance, and it was well-received by eh, over half of the people who saw it. The other half thought that it was terrible, which is okay, because it was a strange little arty film in a way. And, um, uh, you know, it was it was really satisfying. It really was. Being at Sundance was otherworldly. It was delightful. It's still one of the high points of my life. And I would love it if I got back there again someday, but... I don't know when I'm going to make another movie. I sort of want to, but I digress. Here's the thing. Some people come to Hollywood to have their dreams realized, uh, and they have great success at it. And some people come and struggle and struggle, and some people come and have a mixed bag. I'm in the mixed bag category. Um, 
I'm happy to be working in the industry. Uh, I, it's still not creatively, but it's uh, meaning I'm not working in a creative field. I'm working in a legal field. Um, but uh, I never got exactly what I came for. A couple of years ago, uh, I'd say three or four years ago, right around midlife crisis time, I'm talking to you in the denouement of my midlife crisis, um, I started realizing, well, that may not happen. And it was such a shock to my system. Oh, my God, I was horrified because I had identified myself with this goal forever. I mean, forever. Um, That was who I was, was a person who was going to write and direct films in Hollywood. And when I realized that I didn't have the magic password, that that may or may not happen, it really shook my foundation. It really turned my world upside down. It was terrifying to me. Honestly, it was really scary. Went through some really dark times about it. I'm getting sorted out about it now. Um, and it's really interesting now to step away and have a gentler stance towards creating material for LA, for Hollywood. Um, uh, and we'll see where it goes. I don't know. I mean, it still could happen, but it also could not happen. And it can't be the definition of who I am anymore. Um, because I need to find other more durable values to define myself by. That's something my dear old counselor, Jerry, said to me. We need to find more durable values. I get that now. Now, our guest tonight is, or today, or it's night for me right now. You could be listening at, you know, 6 in the morning. If so, what the hell is wrong with you? Why are you listening to a podcast at 6 in the morning? If you're also washing your bathroom or something... If you need help with your meth addiction, you can contact me through our website or through the email address, uh, howdy at grinningidiot.com, and I can hopefully help you to get off meth if you're up at 6 a.m. cleaning your bathroom and listening to a podcast. Anywho, moving right along. Our guest tonight um, had a big success in Hollywood. His name is Michael Miner. He's one of the writers of the original RoboCop film. Uh, I've known Michael for quite some time and he's someone I've always admired and honestly I've been a little nervous around because he's so smart that it makes me nervous which I actually blather on about at the beginning of my conversation with him Uh, I don't know if he knew that about me but now I'm confessing it Michael you made me nervous because you intimidated me Um, but he's had a lot of different experiences in Hollywood he had a huge success early in his career and then his career kept changing and his way of identifying himself kept changing and that's why I wanted to talk to him and he opened up with me as the grinning idiot uh, just last weekend and I'm really happy to be able to share that with you right now I hope you have a good time with it Thank you for talking with the Grinning Idiot. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for um, letting me share a few thoughts. And uh, That's one of the reasons why I was dying to talk to you was because every time we spent social time together, you have more than a few thoughts. Um, you know, whenever... There are a few people I've met in my life, and this is a little flattering, so just get used to it, where my mind is so engaged by conversations with you because of the vast array of... of knowledge that you carry around every day 
um, you know so much about so many things that I end up going, am I stupid? <laughs> it's like I really have to stop and consider whether or not I'm an idiot, which, of course, You're given, the name of my po- <laughs> given the name of my podcast. Um, but you are a life sponge, and you've had so many experiences that I wanted to see if you'd share some of them with us. Um, you, of course, early in your career as a screenwriter, you created something iconic uh, with, your, with a partner. You created the film RoboCop as the writer. And you had that, you had that success. How old were you when that happened? I was, um, it was, uh, RoboCop came out in 1987, so that would be, uh, I was uh, 38. Oh my God, you're a puppy. Yeah. Was that considered at the time, was that considered young for success or not? Well, we, um, that got really fetishized later, like the 24-year-old wonderkin who yeah, became, no, became a thing shortly thereafter. True. Some people, and then the usual suspects writer who won an Academy Award, he was very young. Um, I actually took five years off, had a gap period between undergraduate and graduate work. So when I went to UCLA Film School, I was a little older than my colleagues. I was 27, and they all went straight at 23 or 24 into graduate school. So... Uh, their life experience was a little uh, smaller. And life expectancy as well, I would <laughs> they, didn't, <laughs> they didn't have as much to write about. Of course not. You know, I'd been dumped a few times uh, and uh, hadn't seen anyone die, but uh, had traveled some. So I think that that, that period helped me. The, the, gap period the gap period of actually living life. Yeah. And when, when okay, so you... Where I'm forgetting where in your chronology RoboCop landed because you've done many things. You've directed and written other projects. Yeah. You just happen to have made one that is a little iconic that is still very well known today and very popular today. Sure. Um, where was that in your filmography? Well, we, we, I, you know, we started writing when I was uh, 35. So um, you I and s- Ed, yeah, because okay. uh, it took three years to write and make, maybe 34. Uh, UCLA Film School at 28. I stayed there a little too long. Uh, (laughs) Graduated uh, when I was 32 or 33. Went into uh, uh, directing and uh, cinematography of commercials and music videos. And I was doing that for a couple years. And then ran into Ed when he saw a package of UCLA Films as an executive at Universal. And we had lunch. Mm. And then went, oh, wow, we both have these interesting, similar ideas. And then it was off to the races. Let me ask you something. How old were you when you knew you wanted to be involved in filmmaking? Uh, It was, um, well, I guess we should start with writing. When I was uh, 16, 17, senior in high school, uh, I wrote a short story. I was actually, at that time, intellectually ahead, but... uh, Socially behind my colleagues okay. in high school, so I was sort of the, the you know the the intellectual geek. Um, I'm not sure that changed, but go on. Well, <laughs> though, and, but <laughs> and, and, but it both helped me and hindered me. Sure. Um, I was called dictionary head, by the way. Well, a lot of people are absorbed <laughs> with the uh, uh, sexual social milieu of high school that distracts them from other things. Sure. So um, I wrote a short story that ended up, uh, I, I couldn't read because I was too shy, read it in class, but my teacher did, my first serious mentor. Read it aloud in front of you? In front of the class. And you. And me. <laughs> and I saw several people crying. So I thought, 
I became. I think I became a writer then. Right. Okay. You became a writer, not in the writing, but in the seeing someone else experience seeing what you had written. Seeing the effect of it. Right. Mm. Uh, uh, and then when, when I went to UC Riverside, oh why did that give me chills? That just gave me chills. Okay, go on. <laughs> well, I uh, my father was a a pathologist, and when I uh, went for the entry interview as an undergraduate, I changed from pre med to I took two English literature classes and tried to learn Russian. And then... I, I just made a eyes rolling back in my head motion, just for those of <laughs> exactly. you who aren't with us. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and um, I realized that uh, uh, studying literature and then eventually a, a, a minor in theater arts and then philosophy was where I ended up as an undergraduate. And during that period... Were you writing at this time at all? I was writing poetry and short stories. So you were writing prose and poetry. And I got drunk with um, uh, Bukowski. Oh, well, but then again, who didn't? Yeah, who didn't, right. (laughs) That's what he's for, for God's sake. exactly. He was a drinking buddy. uh, I got felt up by Lanford Wilson, but anyway, go Well, there you go. Good work, man. (laughs) (laughs) And and at that time, uh, co-founded a film school with some other colleagues. I mean, a film society film uh, uh, with other colleagues right when the Janus collection of films came out. Okay. So there was Bergman, Fellini, Polanski, uh, um, uh, Truffaut, all of this stuff hit. Boonwell. Boonwell. At My 16, hero. 16 millimeter, we'd rent the films, uh, we would be the projectionists. Uh, I fell in love with film there, and I thought, wow. I didn't know that I could make films, uh, but, but but and there wasn't really a film department at UC Riverside, but I did make a short film that I screened. So you were in your early 20s? Early 20s. Early yeah. 20s. First film. And you were like, hey, maybe I could tell stories here. Yeah, I didn't know what telling a story was. It was more impulsive. It was much more of a tunneling of experience, visual experience. Okay. Which um, the story part, I mean, I think it's much harder for... Uh, novices to understand that the most important thing is story sure. versus visual. So for, I was more like Nicholas Rogue or one of these. Um, I can see that. Uh, uh, and, and who was I, your hero at that time? Um, if you had to pick two, who would it be? One's unfair. You can pick two. Bergman was pretty amazing to Really? Me. Yeah. And then eventually Tarkovsky became... Oh, that's where your visuals yeah. came from, I think. But, you know, I, I, it was only a couple of years ago that I stumbled on this uh, uh, study of different kinds of creativity, there being two basic ones that this guy has identified. And he looks at novelists, directors, painters, poets, and finds uh, two categories. The... Uh, conceptual artist and the experimental artist. And in the conceptual category is Picasso, T.S. Eliot, Orson Welles, people who work, uh, T.S. Eliot, they work their art out completely ahead of time. Okay. Picasso famously said, uh, I don't paint what I see, I paint what I think. Mm. And in the other category, David Lynch, uh, the French Impressionists, uh, they work out the art as they're making it. And so I think I was in that second category for... for uh, I wonder, though, for people in the first category, like the Coen brothers, methodically would be in that category yeah. because they, you know, they, they storyboard every centimeter of their films and so on. Right. And I'm wondering, 
what does the editor even have to do? Right. <laughs> At true. that point, not. I don't mean to be no, insulting they've, to they've the editors. They've got that process down really well. But I'm wondering in that first category, because I know that when I have made a feature film or even a short film, there really are three films. There's the one you write, there's the one you shoot, and there's the one you cut. Uh-huh. And they tend to be slightly different. So the process, I think, for some... Uh, conceptual artists becomes experimental when they're making the film. They okay. discover some things. I agree During with you. During the second crossover. step. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 for a long time, and I, and I wish I was aware of this at the time, I made like these Nicholas Rogue impressionistic stories in which I would... When you said ha- made the stories, do you mean short films? The, in, the films, yeah. Okay. The, the ones that, at UCLA. Um, and there was an outline and then the beginning of a script... And then we'd start, and I would feel my way through these uh, connections. That happened w- with the the uh, fir- this first big award-winning film at UCLA, Labyrinths, that won these these big student awards, and then the Ecuador film where we mm-hmm. went and I had to make up stuff every night, right? Which kind of fit. It was awful. Briefly, we the Ecuador film. I've just recently learned about this. Right. You uh, with a team of people. Just Steve, a sound guy, and my former wife, an actress. So a film school crew, right? Went to Ecuador to make a, a film. We were gonna. I was gonna make a doc, shoot a documentary for my film professor, and he had uh, trouble finding a subject, and gave me all this film and processing, and said, "You make a film." I didn't know Ecuador from Shinola, uh, but three days later, came up with this idea that at least the concept of a an Anglo woman wandering through an unspecified third world country that may be in her imagination because she's also mm. in a mental institution. Is this film available out there? I think so. If not, I can give you a What's DVD. the title? Alias Jane Doe. Alias Jane Doe. Yeah. Now, and interestingly, if you look at the structure, the process and the structure of that film is remarkably similar to David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Oh, really? Which had okay. a sem- similar evolution. Parts of it were shot, uh, Disney didn't want to go forward with the TV show, so he got the negative back and finished a feature. We shot parts of uh, Alias Jane Doe in Ecuador, and when we got back to the U.S., we filled in the blanks. And there are these remarkable structural similarities between the Do two. Do you know something weird that happens to me with, with David Lynch's work? And there was a period of time where I really coveted his work. Um, less so now. I still appreciate it, but I don't covet it the way I used to. It went kind of sketchy there. Well, like, but here's what happens. When I look back, even on like Blue Velvet. Now, Blue Velvet is more uh, narrative in my mind. But Mulholland Drive, when you when you reference that film, right. it, in me, it does not reference a story. It references a mood. Well, it is. Well, also, it's a little bit. I mean, I, I understand when I watched that film, I completely understood it. A lot of people don't realize that that film is about a suicide of victim. What film isn't? But go on. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They're all about death or something. Uh, 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 A suicide victim attempting to bring the woman who caused her to kill herself to the house where her body is. See, now I have to watch it again. See, it's complete. Once you know that, once you know that conceit, uh, uh, that and that's what suicide victims some some suicides I don't want to say all some of the, someone's to blame in that film and she wants the uh, affection of her desire who rejected her 
to come and find the body where she killed herself with a gun in the bed. I have to watch it again now. Yeah. Because when I reference that film, like I said, it pulls up a mood and an emotion in me, but it doesn't pull up the narrative. Once you know how to read it, it's it's very interesting. Okay. But and I think he had to solve it in the editing room by shooting other pieces after he got the negative back, just the way we did in Ecuador. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I I will look into it, uh, and if if we discover that. Your Ecuador film is available online somewhere or something. I will link it in the show notes here. Thank you. So that people can go see it. I'll try to post it on Vimeo. And uh, that would be great. And then people can go see it. Cool. Um, I think that would be really nourishing to a lot of artists. Afterlife, a second life. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. You never know. Um, So you had this this nervous tick that we call storytelling, and you went out and started indulging it. And you uh, met up with uh, a studio person who had similar sensibilities, and you created RoboCop, and that became an enormous success, and I will say iconic in Americana. Thank you. Yay. Good day at the office. We had a very good day at the office. (laughs) I imagine it was more than a day. (laughs) What I want to talk to you about is, because I know that that was not your last chapter, you made other films and you wrote other films, but you've also done some other things that... As I'm thinking about it, now that I'm thinking about it, narratively, it, there is a thread, but they are very different things. And I wanted to talk about what those transitions were like. Right. Were they organic? Were they forced? Were you feeling dejected? Did you feel like you had to redefine yourself or you would die, which I have recently gone through myself? Sure, sure. Um, so from, I know that you started teaching, and, it, and something that just sticks in my head is you started teaching inmates. Can you tell me what you started teaching them and how that came up in your life? That's a good question. um, I had tried uh, with a former film school colleague who ran a workshop at Leimert Park in the African-American area of Los Angeles. Um, And I thought, I need to to, share some of the storytelling stuff that I know. And so... He, at first, he had these poetry workshops and rap workshops at night and the evenings. Um, and I went down there one night. I was the only white person in the audience. And I got up on the sta- stage and said, you know, I'm really frightened. Hmm. And, and I want to tell all of you, and uh, I, I want you to know that, 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 I, that I feel the racial divide in this world. And I want to try to fix it. Can you help me? And there was a lot of hugs and bonding after that and so I started showing up at uh, Chaos K-A-O-S where Ice Cube used to I'm workshop. familiar with that I don't know why it's right on the right on the uh, 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 the, the edge of Lamert Park okay for some reason I know of that I don't know why but. so um, Ben invited me down to sit with uh, uh, school kids at, at between three and five when they got let out and their parents would drop them off and I, I didn't really, uh, I wasn't able to succeed at that in the way I wanted to. Succeed at what? Succeed at teaching them because there was, um, it wasn't structured enough and I didn't know what I was doing, basically. What did you want to teach them? I just, I just wanted to uh, uh, take in what they had to say and then help them say it. In, or through in, an artistic medium. Yeah, through evolving the process. Okay. So that kind of fell apart. And a couple of years later, I got I saw an ad in the back of Writers Guild magazine that said, Volunteers Wanted Inside Out Writers. And it was an organization uh, 
started by a um, uh, Mary Noel nun uh, that sent professional storytellers, writers, directors, actors, uh, uh, playwrights into Central Juvenile Hall to sit with and mentor incarcerated juveniles in self-expression. Mm. So we went through the whole process, clearance with the FBI, an orientation, started following teachers around, and then got uh, landed in uh, uh, one of the units that uh, had 15 to 18 year old uh, inmates in it mm-hmm. uh, um, that I ended up being in, showing up every Saturday for eight years. And, uh, you know. And you were teaching them. Well, it was, a, it was again, it started out, I, I was scared. I didn't know what I was doing. I was basically trying to, quote, save them, unquote, until I read um, Paulo Freire's, the Brazilian's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, in which he taught me, um, you can't go in and save people. You can help them save themselves. And suddenly all this pressure was off me, and I knew what I was doing based on the instruction of this uh, favela activist, Paulo Freire, mm. who's sort of the France Fanon of Latin America. Did that writing did that writing encourage that you shut up and understand their experience? That I listen and try yeah. to help them and learn what their level is at. Because the the obvious point of attack on subjects that involve racial injustice for I will say white American men specifically is the consumer level, I want to help you here. Yeah. Here's my hand. Yeah. And it's like, we don't need your hand. We need help using ours. Huge mistake. Because you have all the privilege. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's like <laughs> colonial and missionary. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Oh, shit. I liked that moment and I hit the table. I'm going to leave it in. It's a podcast. We get yeah. to be imperfect. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, uh, that's what it sounds like, though. It really, genuinely, that was a scene from Earthquake. That was right. the, you have no idea what it sounded like in We here. should do some Godzilla sound effects here by dragging furniture across the floor. Actually, there is a hum, and I'm going to say, by the way, your inspiration for Robocop was the fact that you are also a robot. Because there is this mechanical hum, and I don't know where it's coming oh. from. So I, I didn't want to talk about the implant that, 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 <laughs> but. I'm taking off the headphones to see if I I only hear it in the headphones. Oh. It's coming through the table. I don't know what it could be. I it's turned fine. everything off. It, it's fine. Okay. Here, you listen. Hey, Michael. How are you? Do you hear it? Yeah, it's a low... I know what it is. Did it go away? Yeah. Motherfucker, it was me the whole time. <laughs> it was my hard drive humming on the table. Well, the second half of this interview, is <laughs> this conversation is going to be without it. There we go. I'm Gun. glad we took that moment. Gone. I was here. I was. I was convinced. I was. No, anyway, whatever. Um, so that changed. Uh, we were talking about the way you you started working with your students differently. Uh, your the students you were dis- dealing with who were incarcerated, and you were teaching them screenwriting specifically. Uh, actually, it was uh, trying to help them. Uh, in the in the over thousand students over eight years, only about ten were white. Okay. Uh, everybody else was was uh, Latino or African American, and and um, again the first year and a half I was sort of fumbling around and learning, and then started building a curriculum based on what I knew they could do, uh, 
And um, some of them wrote their very first story ever in front of me. Some of them had raps. Hmm. Some of them, had, you know, they had all, there was all these different levels. And uh, in, 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 there were two. And gifts, different flavors. Different talents, yeah. yeah. 40 uh, 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 juveniles in two different wings, and we met in a library in the middle. So there were only anywhere between one and 20 young men out of those 60 to 80 inmates who even came into the library. But it was a place for every three hours on Saturday where they didn't have a guard supervising them, where they could let their, their guard down. Uh, and, and there were some very beautiful moments. I mean, one time a, a somebody who subbed for me because I couldn't be there one day said, this guy, uh, Roberto, showed up and saw me and said, where's Michael? Mm-hmm. You know, and I realized that this was food mm-hmm. for him. And a lot of heartbreaking moments with sentences that people got. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a very controlled space. You you surrender your driver's license. You go in through a sally gate. <clears throat> there is surveillance uh, unless you can get a little room like we had in the library. I have a friend who taught meditation in the penal system, and she went through the same thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it's a it's a closed guarded space. The secret doesn't get out. Uh, juveniles also. Uh, their parents control their rights. So you, there's no filming, there's no retransmission uh, of their creativity. But we do did put out these uh, quarterly best writing uh, pamphlets mm-hmm. that then circulated. And then... Where did they circulate? The, uh, among all of the inmates. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. And there was a, a... Every year there would be a, a, a reading of all the people in the units. They'd come and I got... Uh, uh, the poet, the Lat- Latino poet laureate of California, Rodriguez, to come and read that to them, and then uh, he uh, he runs a, a bookstore in Pacoima. I'm sorry, I can't remember his first name. Sorry, uh, and um, it was just great. It was profound because you got 300 kids, all of the teachers, all the guards. Uh, we served them lunch. <laughs> and they would get up in each unit and read their stuff. Wow. And, and sometimes they would cry and they would stumble and they, some of them would just, you know, do a rap and shout out. And it was exciting. No doubt, no doubt that was fulfilling. And, uh, you know, uh, what pulled you to it? Uh, it, it was about um, not thinking about what was on the end of my fork. Looking outside because you spent a lot of time thinking. Well, yeah, well, yeah, what is that? The the service, basically, and being uh, a student of religion, uh, and having uh, had some hu- huge success, mm-hmm. uh, I thought about a lot about compassion because of the Buddhism that I had to adopt to be resilient in Hollywood. Mm including uh, using the beginner's mind whenever I would have a... Is that how you manage not to smack people? <laughs> the uh, the smacking... I, no, I wish I was like Billy Bob or one of these other people <laughs> who's, you know, much more... Because I, I think sometimes aggression really helps you progress in the business. I mean... It has a price tag. Yeah, it has, it has its own price tag. Um, but, you know, the idea of service and being inspired by uh, uh, Catholic activists like 
Belays and Teresa Bonpain in the Office of the Americas. And um, you remember that moment I told you about earlier, where you always say things that make me feel stupid. <laughs> that was that was well, that moment. When you, I don't you, know who you, those people you, are. You know Greg Boyle though, who founded Homeboys. Yes. Yes. So yeah. tremendous influence in Los Angeles. Great. Uh, he would be the first one to say, "I don't want to be a saint," but he should be canonized. But he's not. He's about. Isn't that a prerequisite for saints to not want to be saints? <laughs> yeah, I think that's like on the checklist. But he really is the um, do what Jesus did, not preaching from a gilded pulpit. Sure. He is the guy, man. When I hear him talk, I think I want some of that. I want what he's <laughs> having. <laughs> so. Another chapter that your life has had so far is large format photography. Right. Now, you were a director of photography at one point. I was. I shot, I, 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 uh, besides making films at UCLA, I started being a DP. I, I shot. I loved it as well, by the way. Five student films, uh, shot a music video while at UCLA in the early 80s, just as MTV was taking off. So then this, that director uh, asked me to shoot three more of his, and then from that... I got jobs as a director camera operator mm-hmm. so that, you know, I would I would operate the camera as I was directing these things. Um, and I, so I understood the principles of light and sure. photography, um, the uh, photo emulsions. From exposure to it rather than necessarily studying. Right. No, yeah. I, I'm, I've been, uh, for better or worse, I'm an autodidact. Okay. Um and uh, I never read the instructions, you know. I oh no, you know there are two types of people, right? <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing, though, I am that way as well. Only lately, I've started getting pissed off if I don't get it quickly. Right. I used to be like I take it all the time it needed and knew I was being an idiot by not looking at the manual. Sure. Now I'm just like, why is this not more obvious? I start blaming someone. Well, not I, that I have a 53 year old brain and it doesn't work the way it used the to. The way Apple writes its, its instructions, it expects you to operate it out of the box because it's like it's true. It's like the, on the we've back only of given a, you four buttons <laughs> exactly, and it's all written on the back of and a yet you book. can destroy a country with a device in your hand. <laughs> Learn how to use the buttons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you, okay, so you started uh, working in large format photography, which we're in your studio right now, and there's right. some up on the walls, and I really, really like it. They're Thank you. natural subjects, uh, black and white. I don't think I've ever seen color. Have you ever done color? No, I tried color, and when you realize how many uh, postcards of the Grand Canyon there are, and yeah. in fact, okay. you, you know, <laughs> color, I mean, with black and white, all you have is contrast. Sure. With color, there's hue. There's so many different things. Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I uh, what happened was some some project fell apart, and I said it was the the third feature I was going to direct, Marathon with USA, which became I Focus. That. Yep. Uh, I convinced. I wrote a spec script. Ed wrote, helped me write the second draft. <clears throat> We got a yellow light, had a budget made. Billy Bob was about to commit, and the company sold. And this was right after they made traffic. So they were looking at... I worked on traffic, doing clearances. Yeah. And I was working for them right at that point. Yeah. And and it was sort of like one of those uh, mandala sand paintings where they, they spend a month doing it and then turn on the fan, and the mm-hmm. sand all goes away. It was gone. Yeah. Gone. So I said... That's happening a lot right now to a lot of companies, by yeah. the way. 
So I said to myself, I am going to go out and do something that only I can screw up. No producer, no studio. I relate to that completely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I bought a 4x5, 5x7 Canham field camera, started exposing, but always thinking in the back of my mind, I'm going to shoot 8x10, I'm going to print it 30 by 40 inch wet photographic darkroom, no digital steps. So I, I, I did a lot of, shot a lot of bad negatives had a lab print a few and then started printing my own stuff because as Ansel Adams has said, uh, capturing the image is like composing the score and making the print is like conducting it. Okay. So printing is a really important part of, and in, in the, the photochemical wet process of printing, it's like real-time Photoshop. You put the negative in a, uh, a, a, a negative carry with a light source above it you put a piece of paper that will handle exposure under dim red light, but otherwise you're working in the dark. And then through a series of tests, you then, uh, in real time, dodge and burn the sources of light to bring up and uh, tone down various aspects of the study. You can't perform a miracle. You can't turn, you know, you can't polish a turd. But you can make Hollywood can go on. <laughs> they try to. <laughs> so so um, then the printing became a big part of the part of the whole deal. Uh, uh, and uh, um, I was captivated by seeing the image come up in the photochemicals. Right. You know, you put the white piece of paper in there, and then this thing appears. It's very it's uh, 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 a conjuring aspect to it. That's mm -hmm. a lot of fun. So with these different chapters, and there are probably some that I don't know about, but these are the ones that I do know about. And they all these are all individually, these are careers for people, be it screenwriting and directing, be it teaching, be it large format photography. These are all different careers for certain people that some people spend their whole lives doing only one of those things. Sure. What do you think explains the shifts between these things? Some go concurrently, by the way. Um, none of them have gone completely away. Right. You still write things. You still work on things. You still have projects. You still teach. You. I mean, it's all woven into the fabric that is your life. Right. What was the? Was there a need to diversify? Was there? Was it? What was the reason for it? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think there was a need to, to keep trying to figure out where to put this creative impulse. Okay. Because. Ah. <clears throat> That's what I'm doing with this podcast. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah, no, I'm. And I'm really happy you're. You know, you 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 you're doing this because you like it, and because it's this is the only know. reason. But you know, the um, it's like you can only write so many spec scripts, mm. and, and and some of them work, but a, a lot of them don't. Sure. And even though you you and you don't know they they work, sometimes even you know I had some gallery owner not gallery owner tell me. Sometimes you don't know if a photograph works until you hang it on the wall. And everything has been done before that. You, photography, editing, curating, printing, framing. And then you put it on the wall and go, well, that doesn't work. So imagine, you know, with a screenplay, uh, three to 12 months, mm -hmm. rewrites, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Then the agent and then, well, everybody passed. So uh, where do you put this drive, right? Just watching the latest Almodovar film. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, he, he really, I, he, the, the Robin always sings the same song, Bertolucci said. 
So a filmmaker will always make the same film over and over again. With Coppola, it's thwarted male idealism, Michael Corleone, Dracula. You told me this a very long time ago, and I started to notice it in my own work. Well, so Almodovar, I think, now thinking about it, I'm a big fan of his, he takes characters that have impulse control issues (laughs) and hits them with a life situation where they have to commit and stay on and steady. They have to overcome it. They have to overcome their 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 impulse control issues. So, I mean, wouldn't it be fun if we could just impulsively do anything we want? I, Let me ask you something. When in your life did you ever felt you needed your life saved, and what saved it? Really good question. Um, I think Buddhism saved my uh, the, the disappointment and rejection. There's this Suzuki idea called the beginner's mind. I know this, yeah. Yeah. And, and basically, you, you, you try to start a new project as if it's the first time you've ever done it. Uh, there's Pima Chodron, the Buddhist nun, who uh, writes a number of uh, aphoristic books. It's, a, it's like a page and a half thought on forgiving yourself for being selfish or how many different things. And that you can think about all day, and you just read a, a page and a half, and it's air, airplane-sized, you know. So that those things saved me a lot. I read, um, I've read a couple of Pema's books, but I read, uh, uh, is it uh, Comfortable with Uncertainty? Comfortable with Uncertainty. Um, I carry it everywhere I go. Yeah, and um, I'm still an aspirant. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know. Yeah. But she does have a way of explaining this natural but very desire-laden and uncomfortable state of humanness. Yes. In a way that makes sense and seems workable. Yeah. As opposed to a verdict. Yeah. It's like an ethical morality. There may be metaphysics involved in some aspects of Buddhism, but basically it's a 5,000-year study of the human psyche and all of its weaknesses and strengths. And, um, I mean... A whole bunch of people spent a lot of time thinking about this, sitting in a, a cold, wet cave. So why not take advantage of that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the the other thing that's helped me is the the concept of the teacher or the rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi. I can't imagine a world without rabbis. Um, and I, I teach screenwriting at UC Santa Barbara. Um, uh, two classes of 20 students each a quarter, and to a person, they are at least agnostic, but mostly atheists. And so I asked them, well, why don't you all like pick up chairs and, and throw them at me? Why are you living an ethical, moral life based on the teachings of a lot of people, from um, uh, uh, Muhammad to Jesus to the Buddha to Gandhi? Where does that come from? Uh, it's like a false limb from your parents or something, and that you know they don't ha- they don't have an answer, but I think that it's genetic, uh, that it's part. I of... think it's a temper tantrum. Well, well, no, but I mean, I think that the same way that 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 it's humanness, dolphinness, catness, <laughs> treeness. There is something because we, we unfortunately the news the bad news is what we like to hear, but I think there is something within the human genome that is moral and ethical. Built in. Built in. That is not separate from the body? 
uh, I, I, separate from the psyche, whatever it is that makes up the human. Um, I mean, we're, we're doing a lot of, of breaking down and analyzing and where does this come from and what part of the, the brain uh, controls blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, you know, I, I've experimented with psychedelics and Michael Pollan's book, Oh, I love that book. Uh, 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 How to Change Your Mind yeah. identifies the area where psilocybin kills part of the personality and the ego during the experience. There, yeah, there is an. Are you aware of this? There is an enormous community developing around deconstructed Christians who are using psychedelic therapy to advance their spiritual understanding. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, there's I, a podcast called The Liturgists that I like very much. I'll, I'll, I'll check that yeah, out. They're, sure. they're, and they talk a lot, uh, they talk frequently about their experience with psychedelics and how it has enhanced their spiritual journeying. Well, Terrence, Terrence McKenna, the sort of Timothy Leary of pharmacology and mushrooms, he ha- had a theory that perhaps the, tr- the, the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil may have been a hallucinogen. That that original forbidden fruit was something that jumped the uh, conscious evolution of the human animal. Okay, did you know that uh, the father of Alcoholics Anonymous, his name was um, Bill Wilson? There were two Bills, right? But Bill Wilson... um, Bill Wilson was the... um, was the founder. Didn't he take LSD? And well, you know, he was involved with those studies early on, but the thing that people don't talk about is he had a rapturous spiritual awakening that um, anchored his sobriety to the ground and allowed him to develop the thing that people call Alcoholics Anonymous, which I'm a member of because I've been sober for 23 years. Um, but what people don't know is that that rapturous spiritual experience was brought about by Belladonna. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I read that I read part. It. Just gets not mentioned. Well, well but it makes it, <laughs> make, it makes complete sense. Yeah. Well, that that that, that there is a kind of maybe a another sense, a sixth sense that is rapture. That is, um, uh, the Greek word is. Um, there are a number of of words that were used by the ancients that involve senses that maybe we only understand now as uh, binge drinking or mm. whatever, right? Uh, uh, adoration, adore. I mean, you go back to the roots of these words, and I think they're, they're powerful uh, 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 bases for what you're talking about. So one, at one point, what you think, and when I say saved your life, um, I could also also say reformed your life was uh, finding Buddhism and studying it, right? Learning from Buddhist teachers and being a student of religion. There, there there's. Um, uh, I totally Karen, understand the distinction you're making there. Karen Armstrong is a, is the writer on on the history of religion and uh, uh, historically, sociologically, personally, how God. The idea of God has fit into the, the 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 experience of being human, and you know the the God, I, you know God may be dead, but I miss God, right? <laughs> it's, death, it's death may have been announced, but uh, I think there is a as a whole in our souls. I cannot conceive of a reality in which God is dead. That's the reason I went so quiet. Right. 
Um, I don't think that we would have life force without the thing that is God. Right. That's how big I think it is. Well, Niels Bohr famously, uh, in, when helping to develop the atom bomb, uh, had a ranch in, near uh, Alamogordo, New Mexico, and, and over the barn was a horseshoe. And somebody said, hey, do you believe in that stuff? And he said, hey, whether you believe it or not, it works. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You do not have to believe in your lawnmower. You just don't. It's right. going to mow your lawn. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, any other, any other uh, major shifts that were um, transformational for you that you'd want to bring up? For me, it was, I've had a couple. And I'm only 53, so only, listen to me, whippersnapper. Um, one was, uh, thank God for becoming a meth addict for four years, mm-hmm. because only getting sober would have woken me up in ways I don't think I ever would have woken up before. Right. I uh, woken up without. It's also been pointed out to me in therapy that I have broken a chain in my storyline. My family's storyline. Terrific. From my grandfather to my father to uh, that I'm correcting something that has been going on for more than a century. That's fantastic. It's a new idea to me. It blows my mind, but it's like really because I thought it was just me. Well, I think it's hard to harder to do that stuff than to talk about it. There's plenty of talk, and there's plenty of places you can go and read something, but to actually do it as you did mm. is uh, it's the whole deal. The other choice was to be dead. And I right. just wasn't ready. I don't <laughs> trust death yet. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and then recently getting through a, an anxiety disorder um, that has, I'm still in the process of that changing me. Sure. But what's saving me once again is looking to other people who have gone before me and seeing that the impossible is completely probable. Right. Well, the, 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 it's interesting that the challenges and obstacles, this may sound like a cliche, but. Cliches are cliches for a reason. Yeah, because they work. Typically. So carrying that weight, you know, whatever it was in both of us and everybody is is transformative. Um, I mean, I had this uh, terrible breathing problem for 10 years. That sounds Uh, better now. Oh, I had an operation. Okay. I knew you had an operation, but it was for that? Yeah, I had Because you sound a a lot better than you used to. Wing of scar tissue, just inoperable, just below my voice box. Okay. That I would run for an airplane and lose my breath and have to stop. All right. It was bad. So my ex-wife's first boyfriend drank himself to death at 59. And uh, I went to the memorial and his son, who was 10 when I knew him, is now 40 and married to a thoracic surgeon. And when she heard about my problem, she introduced me to her boss, four foot ten Nepalese surgeon with little tiny hands, Dinesh Chetri. Four-hour procedure, he went in and, and used this new technique to get rid of the scar tissue. Now I swim uh, uh, two miles in the 50-meter pool four times a week. And, you know, <clears throat> when I was in the jail, the, the the young men would ask me... To be clear, when you were teaching in the jail. When I was teaching in the jail. <laughs> There's not a big story we've left out here. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Minor, what, what is it? And I'd sound like Darth Vader. Sure. And I'd, say, and I'd explain what <laughs> happened, and I said, this is my ride from here on in. Uh-huh. But it wasn't. Nope. And it took. You Carlos, were gloriously wrong. Yeah. And and boy, what a what a what a second shot! What a second life, um, of 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 exercise and better health and et cetera et cetera. But you know, uh, staying uh, good friends with my ex wife, Carlos, 
dying of uh, alcoholism at 59. Mm -hmm. I'm like three or four different steps, you know, left turn, right turn, jump over the stream, blah, blah, blah. Before it became something enormously useful. Yeah. Uh, in your life, right. in your recovery from something that you thought you were stuck with. Yeah. So to wrap it up, you have these threads that are all still alive. They're still on your violin. Right. They're all tuned. Yeah. You're playing it. Do you think you're going to add any more strings, or do you like the way it sounds? Right now, I'm challenged by some regrets. Okay. And uh, looking back on some projects or things I could have done with various individuals that I didn't know until now. Uh, but uh, uh, teaching the screenwriting, I'm, gonna, I'm writing a book on screenwriting, and the, the, the main uh, thrust of it is it takes a lifetime to tell a story simply and clearly. And, and, and you know, that, and how you start out wanting to cure brain cancer, but then, you know, you realize that, that there is a simple way to tell something that becomes universal. I think um, a year from now, I may hit you up to talk again. Sure. Simply about the nature of regrets and what you've learned about them since, you know, from today until then. Right, right, right. I think I, I think, think they become something else. They do become something else. I'm hoping I'm working on that. Yeah, and, I'd and, love to revisit that at some point. But it's not, I can't, I, you can't just go in and say, all right, stop thinking about that. Because <laughs> it's, you know. Don't regret that. It's a waste <laughs> of time. It's like, you don't seem to understand I'm a master at wasting time what and if, making it look really fun. Well, the, one other thing just to add about uh, stuff that's helped me, this uh, aphoristic thinking um, that various uh people much smarter than me, things like um, uh, feeling vengeful is like taking the poison and expecting your enemy to die. Yep. You know, those things are, are, are like cobbled together in ways that then, now I, I can share that because it's right off the top of my head, it's, but it's there as a, it's not like having to memorize the definition of Mixelplex or whatever, right? It's these simple things. Okay, you just made my brain sack explode. Mixelplex? That's that's the thing that if you say it backwards, uh, 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 Superman's villain will appear. Oh, okay, okay. I thought it was a candy. So thank you for (laughs) coming up. Michael Miner, thank you so much for taking Jay, this time. Jay, thank to talk you very much for your new endeavor. I, I hope it, uh, the horizons are in You've the- helped it start off with a bang. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay, I just finished editing this piece, and I just love that man. I just adore Michael Miner so much, and I'm so grateful to him. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, just rubbing up against wisdom does at least make us feel more wise, but if we absorb the ideas, I think that we actually end up being more wise. I want to thank you all for joining us today, and we'll have plenty more coming in the future. If you want to subscribe so you don't miss anything, we're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We're on Google Podcasts, and you can also find us on SoundCloud. Just subscribe there, and it'll let you know when a new conversation is available. Sometimes, though, I have to admit it's just going to be me ranting about something, but that can be fun, too, right? Right? Mommy like me. (laughs) Anyway, I hope you guys are having a great week. Uh, We will talk to you again soon. But until then, this is your big idiot wishing you all the adventure your little brains can muster. I'm Jay Floyd. Bye for now.